All right. We have been in this series asking the question, are they really getting it? And one of the big questions when it comes to taking the faith delivered once for all to the saints and passing it to the next generation is, do they really understand the purpose? Why are we here? Why did God place us on this planet? Why did he save us? Why did he leave us here? Here's the big question, right? Why did he leave us here after we got saved? Why not just, hey, I'm a born-again child of God. Every aspect of worship, I'd be better off just in heaven, so why don't he rapture us on out of here? Well, if we're here and we're breathing and we're on this planet as a child of God, we're here for this purpose, to make Christ known, to glorify him and to make him known. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Verses 16 through 20. Let's stand as we read this together. I've titled the message, The Driving Force Behind Winning Families. And that's winning at what really counts. But the driving force behind winning families. Beginning with verse 16. This is after the resurrection of Christ. He had sent his disciples on to Galilee. It says that, the eleven disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. Then they saw him, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. We'll come back to that in a moment. Then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you, and remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Father, give us not only an understanding of what your Spirit would have to say to us today. Provide us with the motivation, the driving force we need to make this our very lifeblood day in and day out. Lord, don't let me just be preaching to educate Lord, may the Spirit of God be moving us to be a part of another great awakening that starts with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I believe this text here, if I'm not mistaken, was the first text I preached as the pastor of this church now almost 21 years ago. In fact, probably somewhere, I was asking Chris Hill about this earlier, Probably somewhere there is a cassette tape. Now, you'll have to explain to your children what a cassette tape is, right? But somewhere there's a cassette tape, me preaching this text. Not necessarily the same way or the same point, same principles I'm going to bring out today. And it's not that the meaning of the text has changed. It does not. The Word of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Word of God does not change. The Word of God will be forever. But Paul said to me, who am less than the least of the saints, this grace was given that I could preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable, unfathomable riches of Christ. In other words, Paul was saying, if I preach forever, I will never exhaust the riches of Christ and the Word of God. And every time I come to this passage, God continues to show me how he's at work and what he's doing and give new and fresh and relevant application of the text in my life personally and hopefully in the life of our church today. And so I'm going to call this the driving force. You might use the word motivation. What motivates you? What drives you? And what drives your family to be victorious for the kingdom of God? Why is your family here? Not just why are you here, but why is your family here? 
Sometimes we struggle with motivation. I read about the famous uh, baseball coach Joe McCarthy who coached the New York Yankees back in the Bronx Bombers days many, many years ago. And he had called up an assistant coach from the minor league system and he was having a conversation. He says, hey, what do you know about sports psychology or psychology in general? And the, the new assistant coach was like, well, I, you know, I, I took psychology in college. I know a little bit about psychology. And he goes, well, let me give you a scenario of why psychology can make, a, uh, make us a better team. He said, I just had a conversation out here with our shortstop, uh, Frankie Corsetti. He said, I just, just spoke with Frankie a little bit. And he said, I went up to him and I explained to him. I said, listen. Over at first base, Lou Gehrig is uh, slacking off a little bit. He said, he, he's, he's, he's not hustling like he should be, and I want you to rain darts down on him. He said, every ball that comes, I don't care how you charge it like crazy. I don't care if the throw is wild. You come up firing. You burn his glove. You let him. I don't care how close you are. He said, you just come up slinging. And, uh, and we're throughout this practice and in the games ahead, I mean, you're just going to let him have it. If it goes wild, it's on me, no problem. I just want you drilling him and waking him up. And then he looked at this new coach and he said, what do you think was going on there psychologically? He goes, I, I, don't, I guess you were trying to wake up Lou Gehrig. Coach McCarthy said, are you crazy? Lou Gehrig's the best player we got on the team. Nobody out hustles Lou Gehrig. He's playing better than anybody we got. So I was trying to wake up our shortstop, Frankie Corsetti. I was trying to wake him up. Reverse psychology, right? Playing a little psychological trick on him to get him to come up firing the ball to first base for a change. Why not share a story like that? Well, I share that story because sometimes we think the problem in the world is the world itself. When God has called the church to be the ones to deliver the ball, <laughs> God has called the church to be the ones to get the message out. And we're saying, this world needs to wake up. They need to wake up. They need to wake up. And God is saying, judgment begins at the house of God. The church needs to wake up because we're the ones who have the message that can change the world. And if we would deliver the message, if we would deliver the mail, not just from this pulpit, but from your home, from your community, from your workplace, from your school, if we start bringing the ball, if we start delivering the mail that way, with a little bit of urgency, with a little bit of passion, and a little bit of saying, hey, maybe it's on us, maybe it's the church that needs to wake up to our mission, to our motivation, we might see a change in the world. Rick Warren wrote a bestseller back in the early 1990s called The Purpose Driven Church. Now, this book was primarily sold by people who were uh, pastors and leaders within the church, and it reminded us of our mission. Whether you agree with all of Rick Warren's theology or not, whether you agree with all of his methodology or not, one of the biggest problems were people trying to duplicate what he was doing in Southern California and other places around the world that may not have worked. But when it came to the principles of The Purpose Driven Church, he had really nailed it. He had said, listen, the Great Commission should drive everything that we do. And then he wrote another book that was also a bestseller, even a bigger seller, called The Purpose Driven Life. And a lot of people read that. And then they 
read the devotional 40 Days of Purpose because people are hungry. Listen, people even outside the church want a reason to wake up every morning. They want something to live for. And I'm going to tell you, this is God's purpose for the church. And I believe because it's God's purpose for the church, it's God's purpose for the family, it's God's purpose for every home to be this strategic mission center. This has to be your driving force. If you're going to be a winning family and you're going to shape a generation for the gospel and for the kingdom, then this has to be a driving force. Jesus' last words, his words of saying, after all that I've done, what I've accomplished in my life, my death, my resurrection, here's your job. Here's what's got to take place from this day on. And he gives these words. Now, let's not forget that this is the same Lord, John 3, 16, that reminded us, for God so loved the world that he gave us his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. See, we think we've come into the world to condemn the world sometimes, but you go on to read John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. Now, are you saying, Pastor Robbie, that the world is not under condemnation? No, I'm not saying that. Verse 18, he says the world is already condemned. Jesus didn't have to come and bring condemnation because the world was already sinful and and under condemnation. And they needed not somebody to remind them of just that, but somebody to deliver them or save them. So sometimes you would think the church today is more concerned about letting the world know that they stand condemned than letting the world know that there is a Savior who can deliver them from the state of condemnation. If you think about it, the wrath that Christ expressed towards sin and the confrontation of sin in the epistles by these apostolic writers more often confronts the church than confronts the world. It confronts those who claim to embrace faith but don't live like it. Why? Because we're the ones that need to be delivering the message, which means we must walk the talk and live out our faith. Unbelievers, yes, are considered under condemnation. Going back to John 3, what are they under condemnation for? For the one thing, one thing, because they have not believed on the name of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can get angry at every sin that they're guilty of and every sin that we fall back into from time to time. One thing that will send a world to a Christless hell, the rejection of the one who came to save them, the rejection of Jesus Christ. That should be our driving force, helping them to know Christ and that Jesus didn't come to condemn a world that already stood condemned, that he came to seek and to save the loss. All of us were created for God's glory. Man's chief end or primary purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, to live in relationship with Him. But the best way we can glorify God this side of heaven is by pointing others into that relationship with Him. As we walk with Him, as we fall more in love with Christ, and we lead others to that same Christ who saved us, then we're giving Him glory. We're making big of a relationship with God. Matthew's writing to Jewish believers. He's writing where this all started, where Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose. And he's writing these believers and he's revealing what they had experienced and what they had heard and what they were about as those first century Christians. 
And so if you picked up one of the bulletins on the way in, if you didn't, I want to encourage you to do that in the future, but it's got a place for you to kind of fill in some blanks. Please make a few notes, stick it in your Bible, keep this with you, revisit it with your family in the days ahead. Number one, I want us to consider the environment this morning. The environment for communicating this great commission. What was going on? Before we get to those verses 18, 19, and 20 that we often call the Great Commission, he describes the setting just a little bit. And it's a celebration of the presence of our living Lord. The best environment for motivating us with the gospel of Jesus Christ is in the presence of our living Lord. That's why before I stand up and preach on a regular basis, we've had an opportunity to worship and celebrate the presence of our living Lord. Did you pay attention to the words we were just singing? That Christ came and he lived and he died and he rose again and that his spirit descended upon the church and empowered us to be about his mission in the world. We just sang it, but in that celebration of all that Christ is and all that he came to do in that context, then we can hear a word from God. These, verse 16, 11 disciples, what happened? Wasn't there 12 disciples? Don't we talk about the 12 disciples? 11 disciples. One wasn't there. Remember, Judas had betrayed Christ, and he missed out. Don't miss out. I wonder how many times the living Lord is going to show up in a powerful way and and have a word of commissioning for you, and you didn't show up to the appointed place at the appointed time. And I'm grateful that you're here this morning to hear a word from God. I'm grateful that some people are showing up online during these crazy times, but they're tuning in today. They're commenting. They're interacting with us online. Somehow, you've got to show up to the appointed place, the appointed time, and hear the appointed word that God has for us. And so Judas missed out on that. He was not where he could have been had he listened and believed and walked with Christ. Don't miss those opportunities. Don't miss those divine appointments. If God is calling you not only to the place of corporate worship, the Bible says, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together in Hebrews 10, 25, not only in corporate worship, but your daily time alone with God. Don't miss the celebration of the presence of the living Lord that in that context, he'll have a word for you that can be absolutely life-changing and give you a a mission, give you a a driving force for you and for your family that can be something that you wake up motivated to do every day. Not only was there somebody missing out, what were they doing here? They were worshiping. It says when they saw him, verse 17, they worshiped, but some doubted. Read that carefully. They worshiped. They. They all Worship, but some doubted. It doesn't say some worshiped, but others doubted. It says they, the 11, worshiped, but some doubted. You know what that tells me? That tells me that some of them couldn't get their mind around the resurrection and they had their doubts, but they worshiped anyway. And so it's so important for us to convince the next generation that Jesus Christ is risen. We make a big deal of it not only on Easter, but every Lord's Day. Why, do we, why does the church even gather on the Lord's Day when in the Old Covenant, Saturday was Sabbath, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, right? That was the Sabbath. What changed all that? It was the fact that Christ rose on the first day of the week. 
And you see the pattern in Acts and in First and Second Corinthians. You see all of a sudden the church is gathering and they're worshiping and they're giving offerings and they're doing their, their, their corporate gathering and became a celebration on the first day of the week because Christ rose again on the first day of the week. So we come and we worship and we might have our doubts. And let me encourage you, don't beat your kids up for having doubts. Don't, don't be upset with your grandchildren and say, well, I just, I can't believe you struggle believing this book right here. Teach them to worship through the doubt. And as they worship through the doubt, they will encounter an undeniable presence of the living Christ. They will say, listen, I know Christ is alive. I experienced in him in our corporate worship. I, I experienced him in the life of my mom and dad and the changes he was making in their life. I experienced him with my grandparents when I'm around them. And as the hymn writer said, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. Don't beat them up for the doubts. Walk them through that. Give them biblical answers. Give them practical answers. Give them intellectual answers. You're like, well, you know, it's, not, it's, it's about faith. It's not about convincing arguments. What did Paul do when he went to Athens with all the philosophers? He debated philosophically the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And some believed. And so give them solid answers in seasons of doubt and say it's okay to doubt, but in that doubt, don't fail to do your homework. You dig deep and you'll see that there is a living Lord that wants to live in you and change your life. So they worshiped even in spite of their doubts. Help a generation to overcome that doubt, not through dry liturgical worship, but through passionate celebration that says Christ must be alive because those folks are experiencing something that is real. And when we do that, when we create that environment, not an environment where we're beating up the world, but uh, an envir environment where we're celebrating the living Lord, it will attract them to be a part of it. I read about a pastor took his family to the circus, and the circus clown was kind of carrying on, and he had this long top hat, and he bowed to a lady in the audience, and when he bowed, his hat fell off, he turned around, realized his hat was off. When he turned back around, a large elephant had sat on his hat. And so he walked over and he yelled at the elephant, and the elephant didn't get off. He shook his fist at the elephant. He pounded on the elephant. He took those clown shoes. He walked around behind the elephant, and he kicked the elephant, and it flattened his shoe, and the elephant's just sitting there not getting off his hat. He did everything he could to try to move this elephant. He couldn't move the elephant, and, elephant, and in anger, he walked away Sat down, tired, this may have been part of the show, may not have been, I'm not sure. Tired, frustrated, he sat down, grabbed a bag of peanuts, started to enjoy the peanuts, and the elephant got over, got up, came over, and took some peanuts. And the pastor who had taken his family to the circus said, I saw in that clown the church of the living Christ. We're trying to move this world for the glory of God and we're beating on them and we're pounding on them and we're pushing at them and we're not getting them to move anywhere and we're kicking and we're fussing and in anger we're doing all that when we should walk over and enjoy Christ. And when we learn to sit in Christ's presence and enjoy Him, when we enjoy worshiping the living Lord of this universe, Others will say, you know what, God must be alive because he's moving in those folks. They become attracted to that. They want to be a part of that. They're not attracted to our beating up on them and pushing them and kicking them and trying to move them. They're attracted to our 
enjoyment of Christ. We were created to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. And so Luke would write in the book of Acts that he gave us many convincing proofs that he was alive and well. Paul said, if he has not risen, then our faith is in vain. We might as well, Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 15, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. In other words, if Christ has not risen, we don't have anything to wake up and be passionate about, anything to drive us, anything to move us. Because when we die, we're just dead. But if Christ is risen, that means there is a God in heaven. There is an eternity, and you will spend eternity in a place called heaven or a place called hell. And through the blood of Jesus Christ, your sins can be forgiven, and you can stand in the presence of a holy, living God. Is that your driving force? Is that the environment that moves and motivates you day in and day out? The rejection of the resurrection, the lack of an experience in the presence of the living Lord can leave you defeated. It will become the consequence or the ground for ethics or the lack of ethics in your life. Why does anything that we do matter? That's one area where the agnostic and the atheist confess that they struggle. They struggle debating something is right or wrong because there is no eternal standard or eternal consequence. And so that's why they begin to worship the creation rather than the creator because they got to figure out a way to make this life and this world, this planet last as long as it can. There's no concept of our Lord redeeming all things and creating a new heaven and a new earth. If Jesus did rise, then he's alive. His word is true. There's hope in everything and it changes everything. And so when your child goes through their first breakup in life, it pales in comparison to the fact that Jesus Christ is alive and well and has a mission for your life. When the child studies hard and fails the test anyway, it pales in comparison to the fact that Christ is alive and has a calling and wants to anoint them for that calling in their life. When things in the world go crazy and from pandemics to politics, things don't go like we should. It gives them strength and stability to know, I've got a biblical mission, and it will never change no matter what happens in this world. I'm to be about that mission. The fact that Christ is alive and our celebration of his presence creates the environment that gives stability in all of these things, and then we can move into the second area this morning, engagement. We can then be engaged in what God's called us to do. Now, here's a familiar phrase. If it's not familiar, then we have failed as a church because we are trying to make it very familiar. Leading the nations, our neighbors, and the next generation to know, love, and serve Jesus. Where did y'all get that? Was that a clever philosophy class? Did you go to some church growth seminar? Did they teach you how to write out a mission statement? It came right out of this text. It came right out of the Scriptures. What are we to lead people to be about? Making disciples. Who is a disciple? Someone who knows Jesus Christ, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. He says, I want to know him. That's I personally. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the power of Christ, and I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know the passion of Christ. Personal, powerful, passionate knowledge of Jesus makes you a disciple of Christ. He said, in verse 19, go make disciples. He didn't say make converts. He didn't say just go check the list. Make sure they're going to heaven. He said make disciples. 
A disciple knows Christ. A disciple loves Christ because they understand that disciples obey the commandments of Christ. And Christ said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So a disciple loves Christ. And a disciple serves Christ. Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. And the life I now live in this flesh, in this earthly tabernacle, I live by faith in the Son of God, the one who gave himself for me. And so Jesus said, go make disciples. Go lead people to know me, lead people to love me, lead people to serve me and to be the hands and feet in this world. And he says, and when you do that, kick this off, make this public through something called baptism. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, there will be those that come along in what we call the Jesus-only movement, and some modalism and other movements, and they'll say, oh, but the book of Acts says repent and be baptized in Jesus' name. So, Pastor, don't baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptize in Jesus' name. Sometimes that word name simply means authority. And so what Luke was saying is that you were saved because of what Jesus did you, you are converted. It's the authority of Christ. We see it in this text. Jesus said, all authority has been given unto me. And then he gives that authority. And then he says, but, but remind people that the Father thought it, the Son bought it, the Spirit wrought it in their life. And so when you walk into the waters of baptism, the water level and you kind of make a cross, but then you're buried with him in baptism. You're raised baptism means to the first century till today. It's not a translation, it's a transliteration. The Greek word is baptizo. It meant to submerge something in water. It is to picture the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To identify with him in his death and resurrection is also to identify with his church. And so it was unheard of in the first century. We saw this a few weeks ago when we looked at baptism in the scriptures and the importance of celebrating our salvation with a public profession of faith through believers' baptism, that it was unheard of for a first-century believer to say they were a Christian and not be willing to follow the Lord in believers' baptism. It was the key to beginning a new lifestyle. Not that baptism saved, but Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to those who would believe the Jew first, also to the Gentile, he was saying, listen, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. And so through our public testimony of our salvation, called baptism, we're not the end of a process. We're the beginning of a process of saying, I'm going to say to the world, I'm not ashamed of Jesus Christ. I will identify with him. I will identify with his church and become a part of it. And then the process continues with teaching them. He says, teaching them all those things I've taught you, right? teaching them to observe, verse 20, everything I've commanded you. So we take the words of Christ and we lead people, we coach people up, we defend the Bible, we explain the Bible, we model the Bible. And so there's no discipleship without commitment to be a student of God's Word. The word disciple, when he said go make disciples, the word in the Greek is mathetes. We get our word math from that. Math's not that fun for me, but we get our word math from that. But it really had to do with those first century disciples. The word was already in use before the church was established. It described those who would sit and learn from the philosophers. So if people like Socrates and Plato and others sat around and taught, 
Their disciples were learning their philosophies of life, but they weren't learning it just by sitting and taking notes as a student. They were learning it by spending time with them, traveling with them, and seeing it modeled because discipleship is more caught than taught. So when Jesus then all of a sudden has, has you know, three inner circle disciples and then nine others for a total of 12 disciples, it's not just that he's teaching to them on a hillside from time to time, it's that they're doing life together. That's why we want to see people get involved in a life group. But that also reminds us that there's not enough of this that could ever take place on a Sunday morning, on a Wednesday night, in corporate times of worship. Because it's got to be a lifestyle. And so that's why we hand the ball to the home. We want to equip families if discipleship is not taking place in the home, if we're not teaching them to know the Word of God in their head, to stow it in their heart, memorization, internalization, to show it in their life, application. This is how you live it. And to sow it in the world, proclamation, share it with others. I don't know if I can remember those words, internalization, memorization, application, proclamation. Remember, know it, stow it, show it, and sow it, right? And if you know it, you teach them to know it, and then all of a sudden you stow it in your heart, it comes up in conversation on a regular basis. Deuteronomy 6, we covered that with the first summit. Then you show it in how you live, that this works, Then you sow it by taking it to the world. Make disciples, baptizing, teaching. So that's just, that's common sense Christianity, but we have abandoned. Listen, when I came in to the second service this morning, and I walked back here in the common grounds area, I saw a large gathering back there. And I'm like, what's the meeting before the meeting? A lot of ladies back here, behind the soundboard back here. They're all gathering, and they're all leaning in. And I'm like, there's a secret going on. I learned the secret. There were two babies back there. Everybody was getting a glimpse of the two babies. And I thought, man, God is so blessed. Our church with new babies. I love it. In fact, one of the most frustrating things since COVID-19 hit is that I haven't been able to visit the hospital. Now, I am thankful for every opportunity I get to pray with someone in the hospital. And sometimes we'll take an entire staff. People, people really think they're sick when all three of us show up. All of you came. And sometimes we tag team. Sometimes we'll use it as an excuse to do a staff meeting in Athens. But we love to visit and pray with people in the hospital. But our staff, Miss Stephanie, others will tell you my favorite time My don't miss this opportunity to go to the hospital is to pray with a new baby. I love to go and pray a prayer. Yeah, we'll have an official public dedication service later, but I love to see those new babies. I love, especially if I get to send my wife a picture of me holding the baby before she's seen the baby. Love those new babies. Could you imagine if we found out these families were just leaving those babies at home and nobody was watching them, that they hadn't eaten in a week, that they haven't tried to feed the baby, that when the baby came to the age that they should be learning to crawl, that they didn't care and they didn't try. When it was time to walk, they didn't care, they didn't try. You would say, well, Pastor Robbie, that would be abuse and neglect, and none of our young parents would do that. Oh, I know that. Our kids are being taught. They're learning things quicker than ever before. These parents 
are learning so much these days, and they take advantage of grandparents and the church and everybody else to help in the process. Sometimes they get way too much advice, right, because everybody's got an opinion. We were talking about that this week in the office, right? You know, even in the hospital, if you have three different nurses, they have three different opinions on how to treat that baby. And, and so everybody's helping out with the physical need of childbirth and growth. We would never neglect that responsibility, would we? Here's the sad thing is that we do the exact opposite spiritually. When somebody is born again, they're a new babe in Christ, and often the church checks them off the list and says, hey, they're good, they're going to heaven now, and we set them aside, we put them on a shelf, and we say, let's go win somebody else, a new baby, and we put them aside, a new baby Christian, and we put them aside. We weren't told to make converts, we were told to make disciples, and that means all the physical attention you gave your child from the moment they were born to when they learned to eat and spit it back up and eat and hold it down, hopefully, eventually. And they begin to grow and crawl and then walk and then climb, and then you're having to yank them off of things because they're climbing up on everything. Anybody have a climber? You know what I'm talking about? And we're concerned about all that physical growth and development, and we're bragging and we're sending messages. But spiritually, are you helping your kids to crawl? Are you spiritually helping them to walk with Jesus? Are you spiritually helping them to eat the Word of God daily? Not just a snack on Sunday morning and a snack on Wednesday night, but they're feasting day in and day out in the Word of God. They learn how to have a quiet time in the Word of God. That's making a disciple. If we don't have that, we don't have that driving force teaching them that, hey, then one day as we grow up, this is what our family is all about, leading other people. So that when they are full grown, when they're mature, they are living on mission for Christ. Now listen, I know that we want to see within this church as we make disciples, we want to see more people called to preach the gospel. We want to see more pastors. We want to see more missionaries, more evangelists. You name it, we want to see more teachers. We want to see more leaders within the church of people who are serving the Lord. Men and women, boys and girls who take spiritual leadership seriously. But what about teachers in our public and private schools? What about businessmen and women within our church who start their own business? What about coaches, both career-wise and those who coach kids in rec league sports? What about those in the medical field who can be the hands and feet of Jesus where a lot of people can't be? What about contract workers? You name it. Every vocation you can embrace can be a calling of God and is a place, is a venue. Your public school, your private school, your home school, right? That's a place for you to be on mission. That's got to be a driving force. We've got to wake up for that. If we don't do that, we fall into this vicious cycle and we lose a driving force. We lose, lose any motivation whatsoever because we don't know that what we're doing makes an eternal difference. Peter Kraft wrote a book many years ago, probably 40 years ago, at least 30, called The Best Things in Life. I would encourage you to read it because it's, it's dialogue. It's easy to read, but it teaches deep theology and philosophical truths and apologetics and things like that. But there's one chapter, and by the way, it's about uh, 
Socrates, if he were to show up in the late 20th century, in the United States on a college campus known as Desperate State University. Sounds like a lot of our college campuses, don't it? Desperate State University. And using the Socratic method, Socrates begins to ask questions and teach people a lot about theology, philosophy, and things like that. Well, he approaches this young man named Peter Pragma, who's a student, and he's reading a book out on the campus quad. And so Socrates walks up and says, what are you doing? Peter Pragma looks up at him like, what does it look like I'm doing? I'm reading. And he goes, well, I can't tell that just by looking at you. I, I, I can't see what's going on in the brain. He explains that. But using the Socratic method, he just starts asking questions. Well, why are you reading? He goes, because I need to study for an exam. Why do you need to study for an exam? And so Peter's looking at Socrates like he's an idiot, and he says, because I need to make a good grade on the exam. Why do you need to make a good grade on the exam? Because I need to pass the course. Why do you need to pass the course? Because I need the credits. Why do you need the credits? Because I need to graduate and get a diploma. Why do you need to graduate and get a diploma? So that I can get a good job. Why do you need a good job? So I can provide for and support a family. Why do you need to provide for and support a family? Because I might decide to have kids and I need to pay for their needs. Why do you need to pay for their needs? Because they might need to go to college one day and they need to pay their way to college. Why would they ever go to college? So they can get a good job. Why do they need to get a good job? It's a vicious cycle. It's going nowhere unless there's something outside of that cycle of eternal significance. And when we make disciples, we're saying, your life makes an eternal difference. It's leading the nations, the neighbors, and the next generation to know, love, and serve Christ. And finally, if we decide to do that, we need an empowerment from God. He closes out with these few words. Remember, I'm with you always. King James says, lo, I am with you always. And some have used that as an excuse not to get on an airplane. See, Jesus said, lo, I am with you always, right? Well, he was saying, wherever you go, however you get there. Planes had not been invented yet, but they would be one day. And there would be student and adult groups from Trinity Baptist Church flying around the world to now over 40 different nations that we've been in. Why? To make disciples empowered by the Holy Spirit Jesus said, I will be with you. Deuteronomy 31.6, the word came to Joshua and all of Israel before they entered Canaan, came back in Joshua chapter 1, saying, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Hebrews 13.5 applies that principle to the New Testament church that's about Christ's mission because the Holy Spirit is now with us. When Luke gave the Great Commission in Acts chapter 1, he said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. We forget the Holy Spirit empowerment is not just so we can brag about how spiritual we are. Holy Spirit empowerment is to make us witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, the nations, our neighbors, and next generation. Empowered to go. Every family, a strategic mission center, every home, not just this church, a lot of basic training happens here. Every home, an outpost in this mission field. About, I don't know, 17, 18 years ago, 2003, 2002, had the opportunity. I was invited with about 69 other pastors, or about 70 pastors, invited to up to the Special Forces training grounds at Fort Bragg. General William Boykin, 
who was training our special forces at that time at Fort Bragg, and Pastor Bobby Welch, a former Army Ranger, served at First Baptist Daytona Beach and had written an evangelism strategy that we called FAITH, and I had used that strategy in North Carolina and in Georgia. I still use that acronym to train people to share the gospel. But we had been invited to come and, and go to each one of these areas of training for our special forces, and this was all new to me. I admired greatly those who had served our country and were serving in our country, but I'd not seen some of this take place before. We saw the obstacle. We actually got to run the obstacle course. <laughs> I had a freshly torn ACL, so there I am out there with my brace trying to do some stupid stuff. But each area of training, be it the sniper fields, hand-to-hand -hand combat, you name it, each area of training for special forces, General Boykin would give a spiritual analogy. And then Pastor Welch would explain to us how when we go back home, we're going to a mission field. General Boykin would explain that we had just had troops in Afghanistan in response to the 9-11 attacks in New York and in Washington, D.C., and how he had just employed our troops to go into battle, and he said, listen, we do not send them somewhere without a clear mission. That mission has to be abundantly clear. He said our nation had learned some things the hard way about not having a clear mission. And he said they went in and they were victorious in doing what they were called to do because they knew what their mission was. They knew what their motivation was. And Pastor Welch, the former ranger who was now pastoring, said, we know what our mission is and we know what our motivation is. And when you men go back home, you need to train up a generation who will live on mission, leading people to faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to bring that fast forward about 19 years now, right? I want to bring it right into this context. This is just some basic training time. Every time we leave here, you go to Strategic Mission Outpost, and it's called your home. It's in your community. It's in your workplace. It's in your school. It's in wherever God places you, and you are an ambassador for Christ. Paul told Timothy to do the work of evangelists. He said, look, soldiers don't get engaged in civilian affairs. They stay on mission. And so should we. What has he called and equipped us to do? Are, are you taking that mentality and allowing it to be the driving force for your family, reminding from an early age children and grandchildren, by the way, here's what we're here for. Here's what we're on this planet for. We are ambassadors for Christ. We're going to be different. We're going to seem strange. We got a clear mission, and we're to be about it until our commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ, calls us home. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you that you allow us to be part of taking the greatest news in this world. That's what we should wake up compelled to do day in and day out. We don't want people to spend eternity separated from the God who sent his very son to lay down his life in their place. 
Lord, help us to quit trying to push and kick at and shake our fist at a world that's not moving. And as the church, let us begin to worship and enjoy Christ like never before. And then with urgency and passion, deliver the message. Only waking this world up after you have awakened us. Revive our hearts. With no one looking around this morning.